this, this, this show is brought to you by Safety FM. What's up, peeps? Welcome back to Rebound and Safety. Today is the first episode of a quarterly co-host, another quarterly co-host, the first quarterly co-host of 2022. Wow. Let's get into the intro. I'll tell you some more about who's our quarterly co-host and what we're going to talk about. Let's go. The problem in safety isn't deviation, it's complexity. Health and safety has gone mad. Health and safety is trying to unpick having gone mad in the past. There's no one solution or one problem. The problem is that we are looking for one solution. Does the structure of the team allow them to flourish? Feel safe enough to be uncomfortable. The environment defines our behaviours. People aren't the problem, they're the solution. Rebranding safety, crushing a stereotype. Brought to you by Risk Fluid. What's up, peeps? Welcome back to Rebranding Safety. Rebranding Safety is a YouTube channel and podcast doing exactly what it says on the tin so if you're new here hit that subscribe button like button follow button whatever platform you're listening slash watching on just hit the button because it helps us get in other people's face holes and etc so it's another quarterly co-host the first quarter of 2022 and it is somebody who's kind of blown up on linkedin of late she wrote a book everyone's gone mad for it the book was called people power you probably know who it is now Karen Hewitt. And today we're going to break down the first of three parts. So basically, she kind of, when we were having this chat, we were talking about what we what we were going to talk about. We were talking about the book. I said, what do you talk about? She said, oh, there's kind of three parts to the book. And I said, well, that fits in really nicely with a courtly co-host. Um, so in this mini series, we're going to cover the three parts of essentially what she talks about in the book. So it's a really good insight into uh, the book if you haven't brought it yet on if you have brought it and you have read it then this is probably a good kind of additional content to complement the book so i hope you enjoy it i'm not going to tell you any more about it I'll let karen do that in her little intro um so before we get into today's episode just a quick shout out to paradigm human performance who are the sponsors of Rebound and Safety YouTube channel and podcast. Paradigm Human Performance are human organisational performance experts. The backgrounds in aviation, rail, nuclear, they've got an amazing team with a phenomenal amount of knowledge, working with some amazing brands all around the world and have since partnered with uh, Shane Bush in America as well. So if you are looking to take that next step in your journey for human organisational performance, you're looking to improve the way that you're humans and your organization work together then they are the consultant to help you and also if you're not sure then they've got the learning organization webinar which runs every other thursday at 2 p.m as well so go to the website um, and check that out if you want to get working with them straight away phone number email address everything's in the description go check them out they're an amazing team amazing group of people doing some amazing work quick shout out to project Meletium. if you are looking to improve your professional development this year you really want to um, collaborate with other people you want to share knowledge and you want to also get help from a community of people in a safe space um, you want to be honest and, and get some honest feedback and some honest support and give honest support and honest feedback as well in a safe space and project Meletium is the mastermind community for you to so go check that out we're currently running uh, your first month completely free of charge so try it for a month don't like it make sure you cancel before it next one comes out though we all do it you know i don't mind you can do it 
Um, go check out projectmedium.com website in the description below. Also, don't forget to check out rebrandingsafety.com as well. You'd have probably picked up uh, just before Christmas and uh, and some comms we've done in the new year. We've launched our own consultancy offering called Risk Fluence. So if you're looking for some technical health and safety support, then we can help you out there. But also if you're looking to take that next step in your holistic risk management or whether you are trying to get some culture improvements within your workplace, um, we'll take everything that we've learned over the last 10 years of my career, but also the last three years of interviewing um, all of these amazing people and getting a real powerful insight into how this is done in reality and what the academics think and then experimenting in my own jobs. Um, so go check out reboundsafety.com as well if you're looking for some support there. Without further ado, let's jump into the first episode of quarter one of 2022 with Karen Hewitt. Grand. Right, Karen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, James. Happy Friday to you. Yes, and you, and you. Thank you very much. Firstly, congratulations on being nominated on the SHP Most Influential Award. That rolls off. Fantastic. Yeah, thanks, James. And I need to say congratulations to you as well. I believe we're both on that little list. Yeah, yeah, competition now. So I'm going to make you look as bad as possible in this episode. <laughs> that I win. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm not really. I'm not really. <laughs> I think the vote will be over by the time this comes out anyway. <laughs> Do your worst, James. I'm ready for you. <laughs> Do you want to uh, introduce yourself, Karen, um, and, the, and the concept of what we're going to talk about in this quarterly co-host? Um so we've got three episodes. Um, so in case anyone doesn't know who you are, uh, introduce yourself. And then also what we're going to cover over episode one, two and three of the Courtney co-host. Brilliant. I will. Thanks, James. Um, so my name is Karen Hewitt. I'm the author of People Power, Transform Your Business in the Era of Safety and Wellbeing. That's a book that I wrote and published in August. And I'm a specialist in the leadership and engagement side of health and safety. So purely looking at how can we influence people more to keep people safe. And I absolutely love being in that little niche area. So in the book, there is, um, in the book, People Power, there is a three-step formula, which I know sounds really simple, just boil it down to three steps, but I'm a big fan of simplicity. It's a three-step blueprint I guess um, on how you build engagement in health and safety throughout an organization the formula is build buzz bake awesome and we're going to cover each one of those over our three episodes of the quarterly co-host so today we'll talk about build episode two we'll talk about buzz and episode three we'll talk about bake so it'd be a real nice insight I think Karen into the book but not enough of an insight that they don't need to buy the book. We need to make like that they still buy. No, let's not get me too influential, James. <laughs> we need to make sure they buy the book. We don't want people listening to this and going, oh, I've heard this now. I don't need to buy the book. Um, <laughs> definitely need to buy the book. Um, and we'll, we'll link the book and everything in the, in the description for everyone as we go. So today we're going to talk about um, build. So, like kind of build those foundations of safety. I suppose where we need to start is really defining what we're trying to build. Like what are we focusing on here? What do we need to, what do we, where do we need to start and what are we talking about? Yeah. And actually I love, first of all, I love the word build because it reminds me of that line in that film field, is it field of dreams, build it and they will come. 
yeah. Okay, I like that. Yes, one of my favourite films, you know, and I, I, I think when you put a lot of effort in at the beginning, you sort of try and predict potential issues, think about the vision that you want. I almost believe that you need to put probably 70, 80% of your effort in at that build phase. Um, so that's the first thing. And the second thing is that we are purely talking about the engagement side of safety, because obviously there's a lot of things need to be built in terms of systems and competencies, um, processes, procedures, etc. So I'm not talking about all of that. I'm assuming that all of that is in place. But what do we need to build in terms of engagement? So really, in the book, I talk about there is a spectrum for health and safety between compliance and engagement. And you need to walk that fine line between the two, balance them, get involved in both. So I'm talking about focusing on building the foundations for everyone in the organisation to be engaged in health, safety and well-being. Because it's not easy. There are people that work in the office that say, health and safety, what's that got to do with me? There are people that don't work out on site that aren't in an operational role, um, working in functions, or maybe senior managers that might say, you know, I'm not working in a high hazard environment, that's not for me. Might even be an industry. Um, often when I talk about safety, people think we're talking about oil and gas or construction, and actually there are, there are hazards in every industry. So it's trying to get people engaged, and particularly, I think of safety as a bit of a value chain as well. So there are people that can influence safety right at the beginning. You know, for example, people that work in procurement that are buying the equipment, you know, people that are making decisions, uh, people that are recruiting the right staff to go out onto the sites. So it's how do we influence all of those people, build the right relationships, define what we're looking for. So there's a lot of detail behind build. There are five steps, five key areas in the book. Um, that we look at but that's roughly what it's all about if that makes sense uh, it does make a lot of sense and I think I think it's a it's a kind of real good place to start would it be kind of fair to say if if you're kind of um, you know you're writing a book or you're taking your approach in that you're the assumption that the kind of uh, systems are in place would it be fair to say maybe that one might read your book and then kind of go back to those systems and maybe look at them again with better skills for engagement do you think that would be right Yes, I love that. Yeah, that's exactly what happens. I think it's the people that drive the robustness of the compliance and the robustness of the systems. You know, I often hear about systems being too clunky or not fit for purpose, or there being too much bureaucracy and procedures, people not reading them, things being a tick box exercise. But I think if you can get people really fired up, they're going to go back and take a second look like you say, I'll be constantly looking at them, checking that they're dynamic, that they're working, living documents, procedures, and they're not just something that sits in a filing cabinet somewhere. So the people are the key to keeping that compliance bit alive. So it's a bit of a chicken-egg thing, and I always love a good chicken-and-egg debate. Which came first, the compliance or the engagement? Yeah. I think we kind of maybe get a bit bogged down on that. I think you're right on um, in what you say. Like we we have that conversation a lot on the podcast, off the podcast, in, in Project Malik. You know what what is a fa- the foundations of of good safety? You know, and leadership, engagement, systems. You know, but which comes first? Do we do we get us build our systems and get compliant first, or do we get good engagement? And I I kind of think it's a bit of a 
are probably a moot argument. Like you are where you are. So if you've built good engagement first, then great. You know, awesome. Now, now you probably need to desperately look at compliance before the HSE knock on the door. Um, uh, and if you've got good compliance, but you haven't got good engagement, then that's where you are. And now you need to look at engagement. Like, so I think it is very chicken and egg, but ultimately, whether it's chicken or egg, got, you got one, you got one. So let's just work on the other. Yeah, and I think I'm going to just latch on to your phrase, then you are where you are. And I think there'll be people listening to this podcast for in different positions, different types of organisations, different levels of safety culture. And so it's going to mean that this formula is going to mean something different to everyone that's watching. And I think it's important to make engagement, health and safety relevant to your people exactly where you are. So one of the things in the build framework that I suggest that you do is to go through all the evidence you have, all the type of instance you're having in your particular organisation and do a behavioural analysis, look at what the behaviours that are coming up, the unsafe behaviours, what are the safe behaviours you could put in place that would eliminate this. And this is only going to make sense to you and your organisation and then define a clear set of behaviours and what they mean at all levels of the organisation. You can get people to buy into them. You know, something like, you know, no more than seven behaviours, but really clear. Because I think it's one thing I've learned in the past. If you're asking people to get involved and get engaged, you need to be really clear on what you want them to do. Yeah. So if I'm, if I'm kind of, um, let's say I'm in my level of maturity where I'm, I'm really happy with my kind of levels of compliance. I've read your book now and I'm like, oh, okay, right. So I need to do some work on, on engagement, clearly. Um, we're not very good at this. Like, what do you think is the kind of, what would you say is, is where do we start with that? If, if we're going to start with improving our engagement, like I, I think that's something people struggle with is like, what, what's the first thing I do? Um, what, what does that look like if I'm going to start building better engagement? For me, it's never, never too late to go back to the beginning and go back to basics. And if it was me, I think, I would look at the steps in build. So things like um, what does excellence look like? You know, if we had a really safe, healthy organisation, what would everyone be doing? What would they be saying? You know, I'm really brainstorming this excellence model. So focusing on the positive, which we don't do a lot in health and safety. What does good look like? What behaviours do we want to see? And then defining a really strong vision statement that's going to inspire people you know things that are going to you know one statement that's going to get people out of bed in the morning saying yeah I know I've got this job that isn't health and safety but this is something I really want to be a part of because it's a quite an inspirational statement something like we want to be the best in you know we want to be the um the trailblazer in health and safety we want to be the first company to do x y or z you know, there's so much to get after in health and safety. We've got well-being a big issue now. We've got, you know, so much to do. The HSC has just published their new statistics. There is huge amounts to do in all areas. It's a growing role. So set of a really exciting vision. Um, so you can look at, you know, the steps in, in build and think, okay, we've got this far. We've got a pretty good safety culture. It's not perfect. Is there something we need to go back to and re-look at? Yeah. 
when you're kind of um when you're building that kind of aspirational statement that you as a company you know are going to aspire to um like to be a trailblazer for example is it how important is it to involve the employees from an engagement side of it in designing that aspirational statement as well is that is that like a really important part or can the leaders do that on their own i've got a funny feeling i know the answer but that's uh well i hope i do <laughs> um but i'd be interested to see your point on that yeah, what I've done in the past is just get the leaders involved because the senior leaders are the ones that are going to carry this vision through. Um, so getting them in the room, get get them in the room for a couple of days together working on it, and then they really buy into it. But you raise a really good point, point about getting employees involved. So let's say you had a few options for a vision statement. You could open it out to a competition or something. You know, there's a lot of good stuff I've done, which I feature in this formula, but it doesn't mean I know everything about engagement. And there's probably other things you could try. I'm just really listing the things I know that work. Yeah. So I think um, you raise an interesting point that there is an opportunity to get other people involved, obviously within reason, because it comes to a certain point when you've got to make a decision. But I think what helps me to, is to think about a little formula with getting ownership and buy-in if you present something as already done, a fait accompli, then people aren't going to buy in. But if you present something that's 70% complete, so that's just a rough sort of stake in the ground, and leave 30% of it not complete, get gather people's views, and then they feel that they've been involved in the solution and they're more likely to sort of carry it forward. So that's something you could do is just, you know, give people a few options and give them a chance to vote on it. Yeah, I, I think it is difficult, isn't it? Because you need to, like you've just kind of said, you need to build that ownership and get, uh, and, and, you, and I, you know, I genuinely believe you build ownership through engagement. You know, you own something. It's, it's like that Ikea effect. I don't know if you've heard of that saying, but the Ikea effect is you you like your Ikea furniture more because you've built it yourself. Um, so I've not heard that, actually. That's brilliant. Yeah, it's good. It's really I love that. If you Google IKEA effect, there's loads of little uh, infographics and stuff on Google Images, and it's really good. So it's kind of like, how do we bring the IKEA effect into our workplace? Um, and and the answer is is engage with employees more often. But the difficulty of that is that when you when you're talking to leaders, senior management, whatever, you've probably got quite a small team. Maybe you've got like eight or ten, you know, senior leaders uh, max, probably. You can work with that. That's a good workshop size. You know, that's uh, we can work with that, get a nice boardroom, post-its on the wall, bang, 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 and you get a really good engaged conversation. How are we going to workshop 250 to 2,000, 1,000 workers um, is really hard. And, and, and I think sometimes people go, you know, when I say you've got to involve the workers more, what they struggle with is like, well, we can't do everything by committee. We'll never, we'll never get anything done. No one ever agrees. You know, everyone's got their opinion and you get grumpy Bob in the room and he just moans about everything anyway. Um, Sorry, Bob. I think, <laughs> I use Bob for all of my examples. Bob's, Bob's like a really bad FLT driver this morning on LinkedIn. Bob's just a boring guy that hates the culture. Bob is terrible. Never employ Bob. I'm sorry to all the Bobs out there. Um, it's, um, I, think, I think it seems quite daunting. So... I think you've, that's one clever way of doing it, I think, is get it to a certain point 
ask for final feedback, ask for ask for kind of maybe pick one of these seven or whatever out of a competition. I think that's cool. Um, how I've, I've kind of done it the other way um, previously, where kind of looking to try and get um, build values or principles or purpose within an organization is, is actually done it. The flip side is I've started with the workforce with maybe a survey or a workshop to get loads of opinions, then try and put all those opinions into some kind of grouping. So like most people said something around this and then, and then I'll pull it out and say, right, so this, these lot translate to care. This lot translate to courage, you know what I mean? And, and you try and make buzzwords out of it and then go to the leaders with that. So it's interesting, isn't it? Look, there are, there's, there's no one size fits all with this, is it? It's like what, what works for you in that, in that moment? Yeah, and I think when you're designing a programme like this, there's always plenty of scope to get people involved later on because you're only working at high level here. You're only designing the vision. So you've really got to, you know, look who are the key stakeholders that are going to drive the vision to start with. And they're going to be the senior managers, the, you know, the divisional operational leads, the people that are, key linchpins in different parts of the business. I think it's really important to get them involved in the vision because they're the ones that are going to drive it. And also they're almost the ear of their part of the business. So they can say, well, this won't work in my part of the business because we do things differently. And um, and I hear that a lot. So you're almost creating these, um, what's, what's the word? Kind of these mouthpieces in different parts of the business. And then when you start looking more in the detail, maybe um, working on designing the workshops you want to deliver, then you can run pilots and focus groups and then actually get the employees involved there. So you're sort of doing it in a gradual cascade process um, because if you get the employees involved in everything from the start, you're right, there's some poor person trying to collate that and you probably never get anything done. But it's like a gradual sort of information drip, drip, drip and getting the right people involved because you've got an inevitable hierarchy in an organization getting the right people involved at different stages the people that are going to have a big influence you know the employees are the ones that are going to make or break your training or your workshops they're you know if they don't like it your whole employee engagement around health and safety is not going to work so get them to sample it when you're ready with that um so i don't know if that helps at all I think that's really helpful. I kind of, um, like when you were talking about kind of those, um, those, those people that you kind of pick out, those sounds to me like building those kind of early adopters or like internal um, yeah, conduit. Yeah, and this is really key, which I talk about in the, the build process as well, because what happens, um, so we know that health and safety is not an easy job. You come up against lots of... Um, I guess, potential for conflict with different areas of the business, um, you know, later on. And you really need to, I'm a great believer, if you can predict things that might happen, then design it out at the beginning. So if you predict all the possible things you might come up against, the possible objections um, for um, not getting involved, not getting engaged in health and safety later on, then design them in at the beginning. Get, you know, the build phase is about, spending a lot of time meeting with the key people in you know the functions and the different parts of the business and saying basically this is what I'm selling this is you know what we want to do with health and safety this is why it's so important to me this is what you have 
stand to gain from it? How is what I'm doing a benefit to you? What do you think? And sort of building this win-win. So you're sort of building these partnerships as you go. So by the time you get to launch and you go into the next phase, which we're not talking about yet, but by the time you press the button on that, you already have all these key relationships that you can rely on. You'll have people that will lend you resources, people that will back you up when you come up against roadblocks and also putting the structures in place. So do you strategically need to place supporters, um, find supporters in different roles so that when there is conflict and people aren't backing you up on health and safety issues, you've got people in different parts of the business that can say, hang on, what's the right thing to do here? What is the right thing to do? When, when on you a Friday. We get that, put that in a book. That was so everyone's looking for that one right thing to do. Um, oh, it's my favorite question asking someone, What is the right thing to do here? Because it sort of tugs at your inner conscious, like everyone deep down knows the right thing to do. We just forget sometimes. What is there a right thing to do? Is it or, or, or does it mean different things to different people? Uh, now we're getting into a more philosophical conversation. I could talk about this shit all day. I love, I love. <laughs> really massive questions like that all day what is safe i know well it's actually what is safe well, i love stuff <laughs> and you start in, in project millennium not to plug my own business but we have like a, a group um, it's a membership organization for safety professionals just come in and, and chat basically help each other out and we run um simon cassin uh who's kind of our resident philosopher um, he he uh, runs out training and he comes in for uh, he's doing a I believe he's doing a PhD in philosophy now he's got philosophy stuff coming out of his ears and um, he's he's an absolute amazing guy and um, I'm going down a bit of a rabbit hole here but I will bring it back um, and we run he facilitates uh, monthly philosophy calls for us um, and he's literally it is literally that like we'll get in there and he'll be like right so I want to talk about what ignorance is. What do we think ignorance is? Let's let's try and define ignorance. And then like, you're like, I know what ignorance is. I mean, come on. You've got one rule. You're not allowed to Google the definition. No Google allowed in the conversation. That's all. Uh, well, I suppose there is another rule in be nice to each other and stuff, but that's our general meleting rules. Um, but the one rule, you're not allowed to Google it. And you come out at the end of the call and you're like, I think I know less than what I did going in. Because your, your whole, once you really ask these questions, what is right? What is safe? What is trust? What is all of this stuff? You know, what is a fact? You're like, oh, Jesus, yeah. It's like, it's all subjective or it's relative or it's based on perspective. It's just mind blowing. Anyway. Yeah. But once again, you hit on a really key point in engagement, which is asking the right questions, asking interesting questions. It's one thing we don't do a lot in organizations is we don't ask interesting questions we just sort of tell people what to do I say we because you know right now I'm not working within a big organization so I'm generalizing here but that's what I typically see is people ask either asking close questions or, or, or questions with that are leading questions so when really closing down opinion um, and once you go in and you won't ask a really interesting open question you know, like, what do we mean by this? What would this look like in five years' time, for example? Um, you know, then you can really see people's heads buzzing and, and not only, do, and, and really gets them engaged for so many different reasons. They, 
you know, everybody loves being asked their opinion. They love having their thinking challenged. And again, I'm generalizing, but, you know, I think we'll include you and I, James, in this. We, we love to feel valued and have our, you know, our thinking challenged, don't we? That's why we're here. I do. That's why I talk to people as a side hustle every night and every spare time I have. Is that, that I think my, my wife finds it really uncomfortable that if I argue with someone on LinkedIn, I invite them on the podcast always. If I disagree <laughs> with somebody, I invite everyone on the podcast to be fair, but if I ever disagree with somebody on, on LinkedIn, I'm like, why don't you come on the podcast? Let's talk about it. Because um, they're the best conversations. They're the ones that you learn the most is when when you're a little bit challenged, when you're a little bit like, hmm, okay. It's a, and, and also from a podcaster point of view, it's boring if we're just sitting here agreeing with each other. No one wants to listen to that. Wants to listen to like two two guys or two people or two get ladies or, or or whatever kind of going really going at it and being like I'm not sure that I'm not sure I agree with that and that's a good conversation and when you get to the end of it providing that you're both professional and psychologically safe and you can be honest and knowing that you're both trying to achieve the same thing I think that's that's just innovation isn't it that's just just how we innovate. Yeah, and you're talking about psychological safety here. So how do we create the conditions for engagement to exist? Because, you know, it's very easy to not ask um, a lot of questions and to not create that forum where people can air their views and where people can feel safe airing their views. And I think if you can do that, then people will bite your hand off to get involved in health and safety. And I know I make it sound easy, but I've seen it. You go in and you ask people some really interesting open questions. Uh, and there are people, you know, in different parts of the organization, in finance, human resources, procurement, that will bite your hand off to be involved in health and safety because you've made it exciting and interesting. You've asked different questions. I think sometimes it's just we're struggling against this perception that health and safety is all about spotting people doing things go wrong and you know, but really it's all about people and we're all interested in people because we are people. Yeah. Yeah. So when you're kind of running a workshop or, or, or whatever, you're engaging with these leaders. So like step one, what, what is the kind of, so we've kind of pulled out already that, you know, we need to kind of develop that, that kind of sense of psychological safety. And we, we had on the podcast, a lady called Helen Heenan, which, you know, if you haven't spoke to her yet, you should, uh, and everyone that that everyone that's listening needs to kind of follow this lady. She's a she's a um, a previous pilot um, and a human factors trainer. So you know, like what she does is like human factors training and stuff like that around kind of getting these people, getting these pilots to be able to deal with and understand their human factors, be able to deal with that in a, a very dynamic situation, e.g., a plane in the, in the middle of the air. Um, so. When I, and I mean, I've been running workshops training for my entire career and, and genuinely thought I was really good at it until I spoke to Helen. Um, and we were just talking <laughs> about how to generate like psychological safety within a room. And it, it's so interesting how subtle these things can be, like how you can really destroy psychological safety with, to use Helen's example, just by the way you set the room up. Um, yeah. With, mind-blowing for me and I was just like wow 
safety professionals need to know more of this. Like it's so easy to create, not easy to create, but so easy to destroy psychological safety in a room, isn't it? When you're particularly a leader or a safety professional kind of trying to facilitate a workshop, um, there's so many kind of subtle things. What would you, is that something you touch on in, in the book, maybe about how to kind of run the room or, or facilitate a conversation or questions to ask and things like that? Was yeah, that- I've got, a, there's a lot of information actually in the middle section, the buzz section on how to make the training successful. But I think psychological safety really comes into the, the build section as well, because you need to be really laying the groundwork for people to be able to bring their best self and you're right what what is it you do that makes people feel safe and I think one thing I do so in the build section there's a lot of conversations being had with key people in key parts of the business that are really going to make or break um, you know your program your initiative whatever it is you're launching whatever you call it and I think you need people to tell you the truth, to open up to you. And I think there are so many different elements you could list, really. But I try and think what I try and do is, um, I guess it's something called empathy, which is, which, is, which is called one of the key leadership skills of, of the year. People have learned to do it a lot since COVID. But it's your ability to put yourself in someone else's shoes. So before I meet with anyone... I try and think, you know, what's going to be their challenge? How are they going to be feeling? You can never obviously know this. You can't mind read. Sometimes you can make it look like you're mind reading. Um, but it's really just taking a bit of time at the beginning to think, what, what, what kind of job role does this person have? What might they have going on for them? What might keep them up at night? What might be their key challenges? And, and really trying to acknowledge that at the beginning and then even asking them, you know, what's going on for you right now? How's your day been? And you can you can see from their face what's going on. And, you know, I've had some really interesting conversations where I've just gone in and asked them, you know, what, what are your biggest challenges right now? What's going on for you? What could you do with help with? And it's amazing how little people get asked this and they're just grateful to have an opportunity to share and offload. And um, so just, you know, in a one-to-one, obviously it's a lot easier to create psychological safety, but you're right in a room there's so much going on. Often if you've got people up against their peers, it depends on, you know, the hierarchy going on. You've got cultural barriers as well, all sorts of interesting stuff. We could do, you know, a whole year's podcast on psychological safety and how to create it, I would say. Yeah. It's, it's interesting that you kind of talk, so how you're kind of talking about like going around and having these one-to-one conversations. I think that's, really powerful um, for a safety professional to be doing or really any professional, but particularly if you're man- you're trying to manage risk within the organization, going around and building, well, two things, you're building empathy. So you, you're, you're trying to be empathetic to them. You're also, I think, Karen, like creating their empathy for you as well. So you'll get a chance to say, this is the challenges oh, yeah. I've got <laughs> and how you might, how, how accounts or finance might it be impacting that. And that relationship is really important. Um, so I really like that, that kind of, would you say that was one of the early things that we need to be doing in that build stage, just going around, talking to people, understanding challenges, 
understanding how their work impacts on mine, building relationships. Yeah, absolutely. And, and for some, it might feel like wasted time because if you're the kind of person that just wants to get on and get results and get the job done, and there'll be a lot of pressure from the organisation to do that. And I understand it because I'm a really focused, driven person myself, but you're not actually wasting time. That time spent um, building those relationships are going to save you time later because you've got a really good understanding of the barriers people have because um, within organisations, often, you know, it's not, not just the challenge to get people to want to get involved. It's to make it easy for them to get involved, you know, and if you can find I always think about how can you offer an someone an opportunity to get involved with health and safety that also allows them to help themselves with one of their challenges? You know, how can you kill two birds with one stone? How can you bring benefit to them as well? And it is possible if you look hard enough. Um, but I think typically we sit a bit in silos in organisations. We're so busy, sort of head down, doing our own thing. But if we put our head up a little bit and have a look round, you know, across the organisation, there are people in different areas with similar challenges. And if we got our heads a bit together, um, then there are ways to start to integrate health and safety and say, I'm doing this in health and safety. I wonder how it could help you. And I wonder how what you're doing could help me. And could we work together on it? Because the common denominator is people. So I think make people the common denominator of your health and safety and everything will start to slot into place in terms of the relationships because ultimately what we're talking about here is work right and safety is just one aspect of work and finance is another aspect and quality is another aspect and and they're all everyone is trying to achieve the same outcome make the product deliver the service whatever we do so I think for me, building that empathy, building those relationships, understanding challenges and so on is, is all about how are we working together to achieve this outcome? It's not, you know, one versus the other. And I always think when you go into an organization and one of the first things you hear is, um, one of the first things you hear is, oh, that's a, that's a bloody finance team. Like, they, they're always cutting budgets. They're a nightmare. Or it's the finance team guy or the customer service team. This is a, this is a great example, actually, in manufacturing. Customer services hate operations and operations hate customer services. It's like, oh, customer services. They've just sent through this order. There's no way we're going to get that order and it ain't done in time because it says the customer wants it tomorrow. And then you go to customer services and you're like, look, I've just spoke to the, the lads and ladies on the machines and they're like there's no way they're going to get this done and customer services are like well if they didn't do the last five orders wrong then we wouldn't have this problem would we but i've got sheila screaming at me down the phone and you're like you're both trying to treat, achieve the same thing here and and i think empathy is, is having kind of empathetic workshops so to be able to build organizational empathy is really really important you know you get customer services on the shop floor and you get operations in the call center and you like experience each other's challenges and work out how you can help each other um i think that is a game changer in an organization yeah and what you did really instinctively there was something really interesting james is you um in, in negotiation to achieve consensus what people do is go more sort of 
big picture. You're looking for really what unites people. And what you did then, you said, essentially, it's all about work. We're all in this together. So when you focus on what divides people, you're never going to get anywhere. So in negotiation, disagreement comes when you get more into the detail. But when you go more big picture, then you find things that bring people together. And, and that's what you did. You said, at the end of the day, what are we all here for? We're here to work. Let's look at what you know brings us together. And so when I'm setting up a program like this, I'm doing the build stage, you'll hear a lot of, but but our part of the business is different, but the way we've got a different objective, the way we do things are different. Um, and so I, uh, what I counter that and say, well, let's focus on what unites us rather than what divides us. You know, what brings us together? What, what, what common denominators can you see here? What are we doing that's the same? So, you know, you really need to respect differences, obviously. Um, at the same time, if you want to bring people together, you need to find out what's the same. And there are some universals across an organisation. And what health and safety allows us to do is focus on, you know, these universals, things like family, um, you know, going home safe, um, caring about each other. These are pretty universal. And when you can find that universal language as well, people will buy into it. Yeah. Definitely. I'm really philosophical here, James. I wasn't expecting this. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm glad I caught you off the hoof. <laughs> um, you got me going now. I'm on my soapbox. I, I like that. I like that. I think it's good. And I, and I think, you know, I, I mentioned Simon before. You know, he's a massive advocate for this and just thinks that, you know, more philosophical thinking, critical thinking, uh, uh, it needs to be part of what we're doing in safety because it's fundamental to... to it is the foundations of of science, according to Simon and, and other people, and but it's also the foundation of what we do um, is understanding and and having that philosophical understanding enables us to go, okay, you know, it's not a divide and conquer approach; it's more like a a unite and succeed approach. So, how do we unite us all? Let's get that common denominator, build empathy for each other, and I, and I think I think you're right. I think it's absolutely vital. Uh, to what we do and, and I think safety will do well to stay out of those to stay out of those us and them conversations uh, but acknowledge them and see them as a risk um, to your culture or whatever yeah there's a lot of them and us goes on within any big social dynamic but there are really simple ways that you can get over that that um, to be honest you know there's a lot of great engagement tools and techniques I've got but some of the simple stuff is really the best like just using the word we because the moment you use the word we there can be no them and us I remember advising um, a department once they had a conflict with a client and they had to get on a call and they'd been on my workshop and said look we've got this conflict coming up we've got this disagreement over this bit of equipment do you think you could give us some coaching on how to handle this call you know one of the things I advise them is is or you know not to talk from the point viewpoint of I or our organization because the moment you talk we all the time the divide just disappears we're all in this together so you can use language language is absolutely fundamental to engagement and just some subtle things like eliminating the word but because that will negate what went before and can you know get people's back up so I did it just before I was about to use a but and I changed it for and um and um using the word we so think about 
these are the simplest words in the English language, and and but, and I and we. And if you can strategically use those, you can really influence a lot more for health and safety, you know, and you're not going to really see a manual on that, on how to do that. And it sounds so simple, but when you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. Well, it does to me anyway, in my little world. I think it does. A lot of the stuff we, we tend to overcomplicate, I think, a lot of the time. Um, no, I, th- I think you're right. I've, I've always kind of, I've always liked that saying, I can't remember when I heard it, but it was a long time ago. You know, we, when we, um, when we fail, it's we, when we succeed, it's you kind of thing. So you celebrate the person you, you say, oh, well done, Karen. That was a great bit of work. Thank you very much. But when say potentially Karen has failed, it's like, okay, we didn't do very well there. What do we need to do better next time? Um, which I've, I've always liked always like that which is kind of similar yeah you're almost touching on the you know potential to trip into a blame culture as well because when you use the word you um you're sort of pointing the finger really so this is another aspect of of language and the questions you ask for example when you ask why or who questions and we use a lot of the why question in health and safety because we're always trying to get to the root cause and you know get drilled down through the information um yeah however that was a strategically placed but there <laughs> however there are times when you know the why can get people's back up you know why are we doing it like this james because it's mine there a better way <laughs> why all right it's mine for <laughs> why are you more influential than me james well, we're both on the same list, Karen. I don't think we're any. <laughs> it's interesting. I'm, I, if it looks like I'm on my phone, it's because I am. And because you've you've stumbled on something that I'm discussing literally right now um, on wow. LinkedIn. Um, not right now as in I haven't been talking to you and I've been on LinkedIn the whole time. But literally, I posted yesterday a, a very short TikTok clip of a TED Talk. I don't know if you saw the post. Um Basically, it's a TED talk by a lady uh, called Lara Radoski. I probably Burodoski, I think, probably said that wrong. Dr. Lara Burodoski. And she basically talks about how our language, in the English language particularly, um, it has it has blame ingrained in it. So mm. say, for example, if you said um, I broke my arm in Spanish, they would all look at you like a lunatic, like to, because in, in their language, that's like you purposely broke your arm. Yeah. Whereas in English, that's like I broke my arm. And, and, and then the other example is goes in another language, I would say the vase broke. Um, but in English, we would say Bob broke the vase. Bob knocked the vase over. He knocked the vase over. So, our language is in, in instinctively leading us towards blame and, in, and it influences what, how, you know, it creates a bias. Um, and interestingly, um, I, like I say, I love it when people disagree on, on LinkedIn. Um, and me and a, a, a gentleman are having a disagreement. You know, he thinks that that's not a very good example. It's all about context, which I agree. Context is absolutely vital uh, to this process. And, and I think we'll end up coming to a point where we agree to disagree and I invite him on the podcast when we talk some more about <laughs> it. But, um, I think ultimately we can't, we can't deny that 
language is such a powerful tool in what we're doing. It defines those interactions. It defines those uh, relationships. Well, I mean, if you look at it from a, like a culture point of view, it's just um, if you kind of think about like Carsten's books work around culture is that, and, and David Snowden as well, they kind of look at culture as just this thing. It's a thing that you can't touch, can't feel, and therefore you can't really change it overnight. You can't get a, an off-the-shelf thing to change culture because culture is, is a product of interaction over time. So if it's interaction that are defining and creating the relationships, which therefore define and create the culture, then our language is a primary driver in that culture. So when I'm talking to, to clients and I'm, and, and I'm saying, you know, they're, they're going, oh, we need to change the culture. Let's get this culture change program in. And, and off we go. We're starting with language. Like we're starting with how you interact with each other, how you, how you communicate stuff out. Like, hi, everyone. We're rolling out this mandatory manual handling training to make sure we're compliant. All right, let's let's tweak that a little bit. Maybe let's look at how we've just communicated that message. What does that say subconsciously? It's mandatory. No one likes being told what they do, what to do since they left school. All right, everyone likes to have autonomy. You read like David Pink's work on in Drive. Autonomy is a big big driver for us. So we like autonomy. So do we need to tell them it's mandatory? Even though it is, do we need to tell them? Probably not. Let's maybe get rid of that from the conversation. And then we say why we're doing it. We've said to be compliant. So what you've just communicated is I don't care about you, Karen. If the legislation didn't didn't exist, I'd get your child and I'd send it up the chimney because it's much easier to clean the chimney with a child like we used to all those years back with Mary Poppins, right? We're saying that we're only doing this stuff for compliance. We change that language to say, hi, everyone. It's really important to us as an organization that you got that you're all comfortable and that you don't hurt yourself whilst doing some manual handling. Um, so what we what we're doing is rolling out this manual handling training. Um, can you please make sure you're all go on it? Um, really excited to see you there. Same message, different outcome. Yeah, you're absolutely right, and you'll probably achieve higher levels of compliance by saying it's not mandatory. You know, people, you're right. Intrinsic motivation comes up comes from people doing things because they want to do it and um, I'm smiling because I've had these discussions many a time because people get excited about something thinks you know what you're doing with health and safety is really important and out of their excitement they say right this is so important everyone has to do it and the moment you say that has to that's when the alarm bells ring because it puts people off and it's um there's um so there's some language I think that we use a lot as health and safety professionals. And again, I'm using a strategically placed we. Um, we say, as, but I don't you know what I'm doing now. Um, yeah, as health and safety professionals, we use the language of compliance. And we have to because we talk about what needs to be done. Yeah. But it doesn't always work with us for engagement. If we want to inspire people, to go the extra mile, to get engaged, to take ownership themselves. We have to use the language of ownership, which is more about what are the possibilities here? What could we do here? What, you know, what are our choices? So talk about choices, options, possibilities. You know, um, when I've been training people to deliver workshops, I, I think this language of necessity, I would call it, versus the language of possibility gets ingrained within 
us as health and safety professionals. So it's almost like you have to hear yourself saying it, which I've just done. You have to hear yourself saying it to know what the options are. So you're never going to get perfect with languages. We're all language. We're always sort of saying things. We can hear ourselves saying it and thinking, is that best language? But you can start to be more aware of it and start to change it, correct it. Mm. No, I agree. And and do you know what? The best way to do that is uh, start a podcast because you, you, you have a conversation with someone, you record yourself, and then you listen back to it when you edit it and you go, oh, I'd have said it different like that. It's it's a great way to improve. Well, I think anyway, improve your 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 communication is, is have conversations, trial by trial and error, and uh, record yourself so you can reflect on it or make notes. If you're not a weirdo that does podcasts uh, like me, you can just make notes. Um, but yeah, I. Th- what is a weirdo, James? That's a really good question, Karen. Probably one for another day. Um, someone that <laughs> sounded her own vo- voice and records it every week and puts it out in a podcast like me. <laughs> Um, no, I think it's so important to be able to kind of understand that. And I think it's interesting you kind of um, touched on a point around, you know, compliance is, is obviously a big driver for us. And, it's, and it, is, it is something that defines what we do. And I think it probably has become a bit too influential, in my opinion. Um, but I think we struggle with understanding what we exist for. Like, do we exist to achieve compliance or do we achieve, easy for you to say, um, or do we exist to achieve impact on the safety of work? Um, or, or is it one in the same? And I, that, I don't think it is one in the same. I think it's two separate things, but, but ultimately in our role, we have to try and achieve both. And it, I think you mentioned it earlier on, it's about that balance between the two. Like I call it, Compliance and impact is about balancing compliance and impact. Compliance is something we need to do 100%. Um, but ultimately, if we want impact, um, if we want engagement, if we want people to do this, we want to influence behaviors, that's a different set of tools and skills, and the way we communicate is different as well. Yeah, for me, I want impact. And I'm going to take you back to what you said earlier about we're all here doing work at the end of the day and um, so it's about how can what we deliver in health and safety provide impact and value to the business you know what can we provide in terms of you know providing I think we're in an ideal position in health and safety to provide that spirit of community to get people caring for each other buddying up looking after each other everyone feels someone's got their back We've got a massive opportunity in health and safety to do that. Uh, And there's also a lot of cultures, really, that we can tap into that have this collectivist nature about them. Um, And this is a spirit of community that really will support the rest of the organisation. So I think really there's some key things we can we can tap into. I think that word impact for me, I am getting out of bed in the morning for impact as well as compliance, but the impact I think will bring the compliance. Yeah, it's kind of like a byproduct. Yeah, when you say it like that, compliance is kind of like a byproduct. Of it. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's easier to spell as well. Impact. Yeah, that's for sure. I'm, <laughs> I'm terrible at spelling, so that's always a good thing. Um, is there any kind of anything that you think that we've we've not kind of covered so far? I've got like a, a couple of minutes left, and I'm keen to make sure that we kind of cover anything, everything. Is there something in build that? 
we haven't touched on that you think, you know, this is really important we talk about this um, and give this some airtime? We've pretty much covered it. So I guess um, to sum up really on Build, it's really about um, imagining what the organisation would look like when you've got, you know, excellence in health and safety, designing a, a really ambitious vision statement that's going to inspire people, that's going to make people think, yeah, I want to be a part of that. Um, it's going to get everyone behind it, a bit like, you know, going into football or something and winning the World Cup. You know, it's not just the football players that get behind it. It's the people sat at home as well. So how do you create something that exciting for people? So taking some time on that. Um, who are the key people, the key movers and shakers in, in the business that are going to support you? Really taking the time to get them involved. Not Maybe I haven't mentioned really, um, we mentioned about the behaviours, defining the right behaviours that are relevant um, and not just bringing in a set of golden rules from another business that worked in another business, really looking at, and again, people don't like the word rules. It's telling people what to do, call them habits or something more exciting and more motivating. So designing the right behaviors, the relevant ones, and then um, making sure that you've got sponsors in the right places, people that are passionate about it, you know, the topic as well, and they're going to back you up when there's an issue arises. So I think that's, pretty much it for the build phase there's one thing i'd actually like to ask you which i'm surprised you didn't think of it earlier on when we were talking about building those aspirations um does that aspirational statement have to be achievable mm, really good question really good question because um in a previous organization we had a fantastic vision statement it was about being a reference company for health and safety and in every single workshop someone would say how would we know when we get there Karen <laughs> I'd say really good question what do you what does everyone else think how will we know when we get there um we'd have a big debate about it and um with a really powerful vision statement you don't ever have to get there the important thing is that it drives you to be safe every single day it keeps you motivated every single day um whether you get there or not doesn't really matter because if you get there, it's a bit like zero incidents, which is a whole different um, topic. Once you get there, your motivation goes, you know, it's a bit like going to the gym and trying to lose weight. You get to your ideal weight and then you stop going. You don't need to be motivated anymore. So you almost do need a vision that you're never going to achieve. It's so big, or at least it's going to take you years to achieve rather than months. Sorry, that was a really good question, James. Well, I was, it, was, it, was a it was a loaded question because <laughs> it went exactly where I wanted you to go, which was zero harm. Um, <laughs> that was what was in my brain. It's like, hmm, okay, so this kind of sounds like that zero harm conversation. And it's interesting that the argument around zero harm is that you can't achieve it. It's not achievable. Therefore, it's a stupid thing to aim for. And I'm inclined to agree with that. I don't, however, mind it. I think I'm uh, I'm happy to be corrected on this, or you know, my opinion change. But at the moment, as it stands on the 19th of the 11th, 2021, I'm of the opinion that if zero harm was an aspiration, 
and we were very clear that it's an aspiration um, and we're continually just striving for that, but we acknowledge that we might actually never achieve it. I'm, I'm kind of okay with that. I'm kind of okay with that. What I wouldn't be okay with would be, you know, us tying bonuses to that because then that has unintended consequences, which we've seen many skips about. But I, I don't know what, what your thoughts on are uh, on that. Do you agree with me? Do you disagree? Do you think it's don't want to go down that rabbit hole? <laughs> yeah, I've got my own opinions on this. And I would say the challenges in the language, when we talk about zero incidents or zero harm, we're talking about what we don't want rather than what we want. Yeah. And it's more motivating in the long term to focus on what we want. Um, you know, high performance is built on focusing on where we want to go, because the moment you sort of look back and focus on where you don't want to go, you sort of come off the rails. So it's the language of it. So I think you can go for zero harm, but change the language. You know, I, I would rather have an aspiration around safe every day than um you know zero harm or some kind of language that gives us something to aim for rather than something to avoid yeah. to focus on what we want yeah i like that i think that's interesting isn't it like if you're in sport you wouldn't say well what's our aim this season lads or ladies but to not get relegated all right that's motivating thanks a lot you know and some teams that might be their aim, let's just go another year and not get releva- relegated. But, you know, ultimately, I'm I'm pretty sure that wasn't Leicester's, uh, I'm not really a football fan, but I'm pretty sure that wasn't Leicester's aspiration all those years ago when they um, went from zero to hero. Um, and, and the same in my sport of rugby, you know, there's teams like that. That's interesting. Do you think that we over-analyse statements like that? Like, when you said, you know, be safe every day, the first, and I could be, I could be, I think, criticized of overanalyzing stuff sometimes. So in my head, I'm like, oh, be safe every day. But safe is a, is, is a relative and subjective, well, subjective term. So then I'm like, so safe to me is different to you, and safe is dependent on the outcome. So what does that actually Do we think we overanalyze it if it's an aspirational statement? Like, it, if, I, if I say to you, what does that mean? Would you kind of say to me, well, it means whatever you want it to mean. What does it mean to you? Yeah, and exactly. The language is formulated in that way to be sufficiently vague that everyone will interpret it differently. And that's what will draw people in because everyone in their head will have their own interpretation. I mean, you could take it more big picture, like to be the safest company in our industry. Um, So I think it's, you know, it depends what you want to achieve with it really the more you go into detail then the less people can relate to it the more high level it is the more people will interpret it in their own unique way and just just going back to your point on sport there I think as a health and safety profession in fact anyone in business could look a lot to sport and what they do sport are focused purely on high performance and they've got specific techniques for example they look at topics like confidence which I wrote um, my first book on uh, and we don't even talk about that in business there's sort of stigma around it and it's a big thing for health and safety you know not everyone has the confidence to speak out and I think you know there's some key elements which are fundamental to high performance so sport know exactly how to do it 
you know, it's focusing on your strengths. It's, it's outlining a really clear vision on what you want. It's sort of mental rehearsal, uh, all those kind of good things that bring a high performing team together or allow individuals to excel. And we don't do enough for that in business, oh, let alone health and safety. I think you're spot on. I'm just trying to find the name of the gentleman that I know has done a Darren Sutton. I know he's done a lot of uh, work around this as a performance psychologist. Uh, and I know he's kind of taken a lot of that stuff from sports. I did, um, I did a course that he did um, psychological performance for safety or something like that. I can't remember what it was called. Um, and a lot of that in there is, is about taking those things that we do very often in sport visualization. Um, you, what does this actually look like? You know, I'm, like I said, I'm a big rugby fan. If I, um, like Owen Farrell is currently the fly, the fly half center. He plays rugby and he kicks the penalties for us, basically um, for those that don't follow rugby. And um, if you watch him do it, he, he does, everyone takes a piss out of him, but he, he kind of, he draws a line from the ball. Uh, and he, you can see him, he's visualising the ball going from the tee through the post every time. And he just follows it and he looks a bit stupid when he's doing it. And if you look at a lot of golfers, you know, when they're putting, they're following it around like that and they're just they're visualising the power. And, and I'm thinking, you know, safety can do that. You know, we can facilitate a conversation where we're, you know, you're turning up on a job, let's say, you know, we're, we're there, maybe the safety person's there, maybe the safety person's not, but you're you're talking and you're helping your team to visualise what that job looks like. You know, right, we're going to put this ladder up here. Well, let's visualise that. What does that look like? What does success look like? What does bad look like? You know, what, and how do we create more success? Because that's what those sports stars do. You know, creating rituals, you know, the whole, the whole stuff around... You know, Dan Bigger, again, is another kicker for Northampton Saints, uh, my team, who I follow. And, and he does like a bit of a jiggle. He does a dance every time. And everyone's kind of taken Mick out of him and they put the Macarena behind it and loads of other music. But he's, 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 he's shuffling his shoulders every time he's looking at post shuffling his shoulders. Like how much of that is just a ritual from the first time he kicked the ball and that's what he was doing is like, I'm never changing that again. Like never change. Everyone's got it. Lucky boots, lucky pants, whatever. Right. How much do we do that in safety? I know David Snowden, who works in complexity theory, talks about, you know, when we're in complex environments, we need less rules and more heuristics, more things that help us solve problems, which is rituals, you know, things that are simple that help us solve problems, um, which I think you're spot on. Take more from things like high performance industries and high performance teams like sport and work out right, how do we bring that over to safety? Create if we're creating a ritual, not a procedure, not standard practice, a ritual of getting a mate to check your harness and your lanyard before you abseil off the side of a building. That's a cracking ritual for me, I think. It is, yeah, uh, yeah. And I, you know, ritual is sort of a oh, it's so exciting that my earpiece has fallen out. Um, <laughs> that word ritual has got me going, yeah, and it, and people can sort of make it personal as well I, I think you know the word rules you know I don't know if it's just me but nobody really likes the words rules um, but we can have other things that are equally as robust that gives us that give us what we need yeah yeah definitely definitely well, I love stuff like that 
talk about that stuff all day. Um, but I think we've been going for about an hour. My time has stopped, unfortunately, so I've got no idea. And I always worry when when the timer stops because I could talk for about two hours and it feel like 10 minutes because I'm a talker, Aaron. Uh, I'm sure you could talk about your book all day, but you've got work to do. I'm sure I've got work to do. Um, so we'll, we'll probably nip it in the bud there. Do you want to kind of, you've already summarised today, so that was really helpful, but do you want to um, maybe just kind of summarise what we're going to talk about in episode two of The Courtly Co-host. Yes. In the next exciting episode, having talked about how we put the foundations in place for health and safety engagement throughout the organisation, we're then going to look at how we actually create a buzz. So how do we create an experience around health and safety that people will never forget and will make them change behaviours? So that's the buzz. And then in the final episode, looking at how do we bake it in? I love that word. Makes me think of cooking. Somebody used it and I thought I'll have that. How do we bake it into culture? So we're not thinking about creating culture. We've got the culture we have. How do we bake in these new things we want people to do, the behaviours, the rituals? How do we make them stick? What techniques can we use so that we don't have to worry about constantly banging the drum? It's there already. People are banging the drum for us. So that's where we're going next. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you very much. <laughs> and if anyone wanted to um, work with you or, or find out more about you and the book, how would they go about doing that? Yeah, so you can find me. I've got a website, which is leaderlike.co.uk, L-E-A-D-E-R-L-I-K-E, leaderlike.co.uk. So you can get me at karen at leaderlight.co.uk or I'm on LinkedIn, Karen J. Hewitt. Don't forget the J. Um, and my book is People Power, Transform Your Business in the Era of Safety and Wellbeing. But readers, listeners will probably have heard about that because I've been banging my drum quite a lot. <laughs> we'll put all the links in the description and stuff as well so people want to find I can do easy by going down there. Thank you very much, Karen. That was a really interesting chat. I'm looking forward to episode two. Brilliant. Me too. Thanks a lot, James. It's been a great conversation. Okay, peeps. Hope you enjoyed that. The episode one of our quarterly co-host for 2022 Q1 can't believe it's already the end of January uh, by the time you're listening to this, because by the time I'm recording this, it's actually really early on in January. <laughs> but it's good to be ahead. It's good to be ahead. Don't forget to check out Paranoid Human Performance if you're looking for some human organisational performance experts. Don't forget to check out projectmeletium.com if you're looking for a mastermind community to shove your professional development up the wazoo in a good way. Don't forget to check out rebrandingsafety.com if you're looking for a consultant um, that can help you out and that's cool and is not boring. Um, and if you are looking for that kind of person, we're here for you. Risk Fluent is here. Rebrand Safety Consultant is here for you. Brand new this year. Get in early doors. Be that guy or girl or person. Catch you next week. Safe.